Hi everybody, I'm Jen Johnson and you're watching Thought by Pat Healing where I get on here and talk about reversing chronic pain and chronic symptoms. I come at this from a Christian perspective and so if that's important to you then you should subscribe. I talk about my healing journey, I interview experts in the field and really just get down into what it means and how to reverse your symptoms and how to heal. And we do that by basically understanding the science of how our mind and bodies work together and how our brains can be causing the symptoms. So today I have the honor of interviewing Dr. David Clark and I'm going to read a short bio about him and then we'll get into the interview. So here it is. Excuse me while I read. Dr. David Clark is president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. He is also assistant director at the Center for Ethics and clinical assistant professor of gastroenterology emeritus both at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. He is board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine and practiced gastroenterology in Portland from 1984 to 2009. During that time, he successfully treated over 7,000 patients whose pain or other symptoms were not explained by diagnostic tests. The ideas are prescribed or described in his book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong, which was praised by a president of the American Psychosomatic Society as, quote, truly remarkable and named by Britain Co. to be one of the best five mind-body books ever written. He is also the lead editor for the professional textbook, Psychophysiologic Disorders. He lectures about psychophysiologic disorders to healthcare professionals and the public across North America and in Europe and has appeared on over 100 television and radio broadcasts. The PPD Association website is endchronicpain.org. All right, so that's a little bit about him. And without further ado, I give you the interview. Hi, everybody. I am Jen Johnson, and you're watching Thought by Thought Healing, and I am just honored to have with me Dr. David Clark. So, David, thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I just finished reading your book last week, They Can't Find Anything Wrong, which I'm holding in my hand for those of you who are listening. Um, super inspiring. Uh, thank you for writing it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, can you just start by telling us a little bit about your story and how you got into mind-body medicine? I know your journey is a little bit different. Um, maybe just start with that that part of your story. Yeah, you bet. It was uh, somewhat shocking. I mean, I was uh, in the eighth year of my medical education and training. I had been doing well up to that point. I got an award for excellence in medical school. I was about to pass my board certification exams with flying colors. And so I thought, you know, I was well on my way to becoming a good physician. And then I found out that there was a whole category of illness uh, that I didn't know the first thing about diagnosis and treatment. Uh, and this was all from one patient that nobody could figure out. She had severe symptoms and she'd already been evaluated at one university. And then she came to UCLA where I was in training and we couldn't find anything wrong with her either. Uh, but I accidentally stumbled on the fact that she had been subjected to severe stress as a child. Um, nobody had touched her against her will for 25 years, but all of a sudden in her mid-30s, she developed this severe illness. And I, at the time, had no idea that there could be a connection between stress when you were a child and illness as an adult. But there was a psychiatrist uh, there at UCLA whom I knew, you know, I'd heard about, had an interest in 
these mind body conditions. And so just, just for something to do, not really thinking that anything would come of it. I arranged for this patient to get an appointment with Harriet Kaplan, who was the psychiatrist and forgot all about it thinking, you know, it was going to be a waste of time, but I ran into Harriet a few months later in an elevator and I, to make conversation after what happened to the patient. And lo and behold, the patient was cured with, you know, eight or 10 weeks of counseling sessions, you know, no medications, no surgeries, just conversation, yeah. um, which completely shocked me um, that such a thing was possible. And I, I have to admit at the time I was in something of, of denial about that, um, you know, mm -hmm. that I could, you know, have been such a complete failure with this patient who was curable. And so I just assumed that this condition must be really rare, that I couldn't get to the eighth year of my training and not and know nothing about this unless it was really, really rare. Well, that turned out to be completely wrong. Uh, when I got into private practice in Portland, then I started asking the questions and taking the approach that Harriet had taught me to do, I was finding it's these issues in five or six patients a week. And so, you know, today I'm 7,000 plus patients that I've treated for this condition over the last 40 years or so. Um, and even more shocking, none of the other doctors in, in my community in Portland, Oregon, either mental health or medical um, had much of an interest in this. The mental health people, it was like, that's a physical symptom. We don't go there. And the medical people, well, there's no organ disease. There's no structural abnormality. Uh, so it's not our job either. And these patients fall into a giant blind spot. There are millions of them. It's it's 40% of people who go to a primary care doctor. And it's by far the biggest blind spot in medicine. So that's how I got started. And I couldn't walk away from this once I found out about it. I just tried to learn more and more and more and gradually became better at it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, your numbers are awesome. Um, going back to that 40%, wh why, do, why do you think that is that 40% of people were looking at mind-body symptoms? Well, the brain is very powerful. Uh, you know, it, uh, it can generate symptoms. And this is one of the uh, points of ignorance is that normally when a person has a symptom, you immediately start thinking what is going on in the part of the body that has the symptom that is causing this. And yeah. this is how physicians are trained. This is how people think about it. If my back hurts, what's wrong with my back? But it turns out that a very large fraction of symptoms can be generated by the brain. And the reason the brain is doing this is that it actually is wired differently than the brains of people who don't have these symptoms. And we've seen that in functional magnetic resonance imaging studies. And why is the brain rewired? It's because of stress. And oftentimes it's stress that people don't even recognize they have. It can be stress from, uh, from childhood, as with that very first patient. It can be stress in your life at the moment. It can be a mental health condition that you don't realize that you have. Um, and I have to go through each of these systematically to uh, evaluate people and find out um, what they're struggling with. Because, you know, very often um, people don't realize uh, what's going on. They don't, they may ha have a limited idea of how much stress they're coping with, but the, the sheer magnitude of it, um, they're frequently not aware of. Yeah. Um, in, in a couple of my past interviews, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, how to diagnose um, and physiologically what's happening. 
Um, but something I really valued about your book was what you just touched on. And, and it's kind of, um, I'm going to use the word the way out, even though I know there's a, another book called that. Um, but um, I really liked how you laid out kind of what to look for. And a, a big part of, of my video podcast or my podcast is, is trying to get as much free information for people that can't afford um, counseling and can't afford to see a mind body medicine doctor and whatnot. So um, can, can we just unpack a little bit more that you talk about five stresses. Um, and so I, I'd love to look, just spend some time looking at what are we what are we really looking at if we're going to do self-analysis let's say for the people watching um which i did on my own also was healed through this process of what am, what are we looking for and then when we're done with that moving on to like well, okay then what do we do after it after we identify the cause yeah it's it's a process uh, it took me a number of years and and hundreds of interviews to work out these details but it starts very simply with uh, stress that's going on in your life at the moment um you know what kinds of issues are you having uh, you know it, it could be almost anything bad that can happen to a human being it could be something with your uh, close personal relationships your family your children your spouse uh, parents uh, it could be neighbors, could be workplace, um, any of those things. One of my patients, um, his church was splitting in two. They were having a big dispute about uh, a doctrine and they couldn't agree with each other. He was a deacon of the church and the church, you know, half the church members were leaving and going off to, to start their own. And it was just tearing him up. And his physical symptoms corresponded chronologically to the time of that breakup. Um, so that's, that's, a big category, but uh, an even bigger category is stress when people were children, which is anything that uh, tends to impact a person's self-esteem on a long-term basis, make them feel like they are not as worthy uh, as other people. And this can be from almost anything. It can be uh, as severe as sexual abuse, for example, or physical abuse, or it could be a lot more subtle where you're just simply not getting the approval and support uh, from your family that you deserve. Or it could be that there's um, uh, turmoil in the home, you know, there's substance abuse, or there's um, a breakup, or there's the death of a family member, sometimes through a, a traumatic cause. Um, lots and lots of different ways that uh, can impact a child and make them feel like they're uh, failing. Uh, you know, one of my patients, a simple example, she was managing the family checkbook for her two alcoholic parents starting at the age of seven. And, you know, she was making mistakes along the way, as you might expect. And mm -hmm. she felt, you know, terrible personal responsibility for making those mistakes. Lots of my patients have come out of these experiences uh, trying to be perfect, very hard on themselves when they fall even a little bit short uh, of perfection doing their best to focus on the needs of other people in their world, but not being so successful at putting themselves on the list of people they take care of. So there are lots of ripple effects that last long into the adult years uh, from my patients who've suffered as children. And then the last three categories are mental health conditions, but it turns out that those mental health conditions um, very often manifest primarily as a physical symptom of one sort or another. So depression, uh, post-trauma, uh, anxiety disorders, very, very common conditions. And certainly 
lots of people with those conditions realize they have a mental health challenge. They go to a mental health uh, practitioner, but um, it turns out a majority, uh, it manifests physically and it brings them to their medical clinician. And if the medical clinician doesn't know what to look for, um, it can be missed. And in fact, it's, it's missed more than half the time. So for depression, for example, lots of people don't feel particularly depressed, but they're not sleeping well, their energy is down, their appetite is off, they're losing interest in activities they used to enjoy, they're crying for little or no reason, they're starting to feel like their life is, has lost its meaning, they may even be thinking of doing harm to themselves. Um, those are all symptoms of depression, uh, and they can be... Um, very clear and, and very manifest, even in people who say, no, I don't feel that depressed, yeah. stressed, exasperated, frustrated, yes, but depressed, not so much. But in fact, they meet the uh, clinical criteria for the diagnosis. Yeah, it wasn't until the aftermath of healing that I looked back and realized, oh, I was definitely struggling with depression and anxiety. But um, I didn't feel that because I didn't match what I thought that meant it was and so I ignored it. Yeah, that's um, very, very common. Um, and unfortunately, the studies have shown that uh, two thirds of the people who go to their doctor suffering from depression, the doctor doesn't figure out that that's what's going on. And that, that would be completely unacceptable for any other form of disease. I mean, if, if, if you as a doctor missed finding cancer two-thirds of the time or heart disease or diabetes, um, that would be completely unacceptable. But uh, depression and, and trauma and anxiety, it happens all the time, unfortunately. So with those anxiety and depression in particular, um, uh, do, do you believe that it's it is healable in the same way that physical symptoms are healable? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've seen it in thousands of my patients. If you are able to go back and find the roots of this, that's something that uh, I was taught to do early on is try to trace the sources of these problems back to where they began. And very often it is... Um, when the person was a child and the environment that they grew up in, um, were they supported? Were they made to feel loved? Were they made to feel like um, they were as good as anybody else? Or were they not? Did they learn things about themselves from the childhood environment that, that aren't true? For example, did they learn that it's their job to take care of other people's needs who are um, not functioning very well or need a lot of support? Uh, did they learn that the boundaries of their body don't need to be respected? Did they Were they taught that they're um, not as good as other people? Um, lots and lots of these lessons that are false that can be uh, can become fundamental assumptions that people as children take into themselves uh, at an early age, uh, inflicted on them from people who are very important in their lives. And it becomes uh, you know, very hard to change your mind about those things, to realize that uh, those assumptions are not true. Um, and the stress from that, the emotional pressure from that uh, can have all kinds of consequences. Um, not only physical symptoms, um, but people can try to treat themselves for the uh, bad feelings that they have around that with drugs, with promiscuity, um, with eating disorders, uh, with cutting behavior. Um, 
those are all forms of uh, self-treatment uh, by somebody who is really struggling. Yeah, that was really eye-opening for me in this whole journey was to realize there are so many ways that this this trauma or these hurts really play out in in ways that we just don't identify. I mean, you mentioning um, a lot of those like cutting and eating and like addictions and, and things like that. Um, it really, um, it allows me to approach um, people with compassion and kind of removes that sense of judgment, both for other people and for myself too, um, to recognize that this is just this is hurt that I get to that I get to now deal with and and overcome. Um, I love in, in the book you give a hero award out. Is that right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you bet. You know, my patients who come from adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, one of the most common denominators we'll call it in their background is that they feel. Um, like second-rate human beings or, you know, feel like worthless pieces of crap, basically. And that's what those aces have done to them. And I want them to completely flip that around. I want them to think of themselves as if uh, they had been born on the far side of Mount Everest or in the middle of a dangerous wilderness through no fault of their own. And yet they had found their way out of that environment. They had had the, the strength and the perseverance and the determination to endure that environment and find a way out of it, to climb up and over Mount Everest or, or find their way out of that dangerous jungle. And that meets the definition of a hero. Um, they have overcome a difficult mental or physical challenge for a good cause. And that's, that's what a hero is in our society. I want them to think of themselves in those terms. And so I often will give people a, a simple index card, you know, with their name on it. And it says, Jen is a hero, exclamation point. And ask them to, you know, keep that with you in your uh, personal belongings or tape it to your bathroom mirror. So you'll see it as a reminder every day, because I want to uh, begin that process of a 180 degree turnaround uh, in their self-image. And number one, because they deserve it. Number two, uh, because it has uh, ripple effects on many other aspects of their lives. One of the most important being that uh, they suddenly will find uh, entirely different people in their close personal relationships. They'll go from being with somebody that needs lots and lots of, of attention and support and relationships that are they're giving 95% and they're only getting 5% back, which is typically what they grew up with. Once you start thinking of yourself as a heroic survivor, um, then the people that you're going to be in relationships with um, will reflect that. And you'll be in relationships that are um, more 50-50, more balanced, more mutually supportive. Yeah, it's very, very true. Um, and just that um, that hero mentality or the way that you view yourself for me, when I started to make that shift, um, ch I mean, it just changes how it feels in your blood even. Just your, just your whole physiology has this dramatic effect, which... Um, which helps with the evidence that your pain is, is mind-body syndrome or psychophysiologic disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Once you have 
accepted the the truth of your situation that you've done a remarkable thing by surviving and overcoming a difficult adverse environment um, lots and lots of other things change um, you you have that that internal um, self-love uh, which is you know so important to um, the kinds of people you choose to be in relationships with um, for the rest of your life mm -hmm. yeah can we go back and just talk about the ACEs study a little bit, just for people that aren't familiar with that? Yeah, hard to believe it's been uh, almost 25 years since yeah. that came out. And unfortunately, for probably the first decade, uh, it got widely ignored. But it was a study done in uh, San Diego County of 18,000 people who came in for routine checkups. And they all got a 10-item questionnaire asking them about various types of adversity um, that they had experienced. And it turned out that the more adversity you had been through, the more likely it was you were going to have a bad outcome with respect to your health uh, later in life. Uh, drug addiction, uh, suicide attempts, alcoholism, obesity, uh, and lots of medical conditions as well. Emphysema, heart disease, diabetes, uh, cancer, even autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly uh, psychophysiologic disorders as well. I mean, they triple the risk if you had four or more ACEs uh, compared to people that had none. Um, so, you know, very uh, profound uh, impacts that, that could go on for decades. People who had six or more ACEs out of the 10 uh, died actually 20 years younger than people who had no ACEs. So um, very, very important uh, study. Um, but it turns out that those long-term impacts can be addressed. It's not like the, uh, the horses escaped the barn. Even though those mm -hmm. um, issues happened to you when you were a kid, it's possible through counseling uh, to recognize a lot of those impacts and make changes um, that uh, at, at the very least can help with your mental health and with the psychophysiologic disorders. Yeah. And that's the message that I really want to send is this one of hope that, yeah, we've experienced really hard things in life and yet we're not stuck. And so on that note, um, so we've looked at the, the five stressors. And so let's say we have a list of all the stressors. We have a list of the childhood adversities we've experienced. Um, Great. Where do, where where do we go from there? And I know you have the seven keys of healing. Yeah, there there's a lot of um, different uh, approaches that that we can mm -hmm. use depending on the particular stress uh, that a person has been through. And if it happens to be something that's in your life at the moment, just simply recognizing that um, and noticing that there's a chronological link, for example, between when and where a particular stress is happening and when and where your physical symptoms are flaring up. Uh, you know, simple example is a patient of mine who was uh, experiencing his symptoms while he was driving to work, um, but yeah. he was fine when he was driving home from work, you know, so that kind of tells you, you know, that mm -hmm. there was something going on in the workplace, which for him absolutely was. Uh, another patient um, was sent to me for a gastrointestinal problem because that's what I specialize in. But when I asked him why he was there, he started telling me about his daily severe back pain. And so I just said, okay, I'm not a back pain specialist, but let's talk about that. Well, it turned out that he had severe pain every day for the over 25 years, except two weeks out of the year. 
And I think most people can guess that during those two weeks out of the year, he was on vacation. Um, and so that that kind of tells you right there that it's likely stress related. Um, but uh, I had to ask, you know, are you just lying on a warm beach somewhere, taking good care of your back? And maybe that's why it's not hurting when you're on vacation. And he said, no, he's actually fly fishing up in British Columbia. Yeah. And, you know, you can imagine all the moves that somebody is making when they're they're fly fishing. They're mm -hmm. you know, bending up yeah. and down. They're twisting. His back was fine. And at the end of the day, when he's through fly fishing, he's helping the lodge owner clear brush from behind the lodge. Yeah. And this whole time, he's fine. Um, so that immediately tells us and tells him that we need to go looking uh, for stress for the childhood stress. Uh, there's, there's lots of techniques there. I mean, certainly, you know, if it's really severe and, and it's affecting you in a number of ways, you know, trying to get yourself to a psychotherapist for, for treatment um, is going to be um, the most helpful course. But short of that, uh, there's an app called curable out there that uh, they've, uh, consulted with uh, most of the leading experts uh, in the U.S. and uh, internationally, and they put uh, tons and tons of great ideas uh, into a friendly user interface. Um, another technique is simply to sit down and when you feel ready, write a letter uh, to the person who mistreated you, or if there's more than one, write a letter to each one of them, not to mail it, just to write it, to put down as honestly and completely as you can uh, your thoughts and feelings about um, what that person uh, puts you through. And a lot of times, once people feel ready to do this, the act of writing has this magic ability to pull ideas out of your head that you didn't necessarily know were in there. Yeah. One of my patients, she put me off for months and not wanting to write a letter to her dad that I thought was going to be essential for her. And she just didn't want to. And she finally said to me, look, I'm tired of you asking me to do this every time I come into your office. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll make a deal with you. I will, I will write two paragraphs to my dad, but you have to agree to stop asking me to, to write this thing. And I said, I don't think two paragraphs is going to be enough. And she said, take it or leave it. That's all I'm willing to do. So I, I said, okay, you know, two paragraphs, probably better than nothing. Well, uh, you can almost guess what happened. She yeah. wrote two paragraphs and then she wrote a third paragraph and then a fourth paragraph and then she couldn't stop and she ended up with nine single spaced typewritten pages and her symptoms in her case 90 percent better after she did that um, so that's that's a really good one too yeah um, my understanding is that there's a lot of research around the effectiveness of writing and i i know for myself i wasn't i, I was I was, I was writing prior, like when I was in chronic pain, I was writing in a cyclical negative, just repetition of my negative thoughts. And, um, and that was not helpful. Um, and when I switched uh, my intent behind writing, it made the world of difference. And, and you're right. And, and to this day, I still write um, because it is, there is something about it that separates you from your thoughts and gets it out of your body. It's, yeah, and uh, so many of my patients have enormous amounts of negative emotions that yeah. are repressed, that are outside of their conscious awareness. And one of the techniques that I uh, urge people to try is to imagine themselves a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home. 
and they are watching a child they care about, either one of their own children or someone else's, uh, try to cope with everything that the patient had to cope with as a child. And they they're, can't do anything about it. They can't intervene. They're just a butterfly on the wall, and they're having to watch this happen uh, to a kid that they care about and just for a week or so and to think about what it would be like uh, to watch all that happen. And this is very helpful to people because when they look back at their own experience, uh, looking back at their own lives, they have repressed so much that they tend not to have an accurate sense of what it was really like. But if they imagine it happening to a child, an innocent child, especially one that they really care about, it gives a completely different perspective. And from that perspective, then they can do some writing, some journaling or writing to the ACE perpetrator. uh, And a lot more will come out when they do that. Yeah. And And the more, I'm sorry, one more thing, the more of those emotions you can put onto a page, the less those emotions need to express themselves via your body. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned the unsent letter um, because I think a lot of times people are afraid that if they if they recognize mm, some of their pain, that that means they have to address the person that hurt them. And that's not always the case. Would you agree with that? that that's right. It, it can be completely private. Um, I've had a handful of patients over the years who've sent the letter to the ACE perpetrator, but it usually doesn't work out the way they hope it would. I think many of my patients wish they could reconcile with the people who mistreated them. They, they hold on to that hope. Um, it's usually not a realistic hope, but I don't try to dissuade them or persuade them one way or the other. The important thing is that, you know, if you're even thinking of forgiving someone, you first have to have a full accounting of everything you might want to forgive them for. And that oftentimes involves writing it all down. Yeah. I I think that's, I I love that point because most of my audience is Christians. And so forgiveness is something we talk about often, um, but it's often something that is done flippantly and uh, as an act of obedience. And and in that, there is no recognition of the hurt. Um, there's, well, there, I should say there is often no recognition. And in your book, you talk about that being, knowing what are, what are you forgiving? Because then that allows us to be honest and raw and, and in uh, congruency, I guess, inside uh, to recognize the hurt and then forgive. Yeah, I, I think that's so important that, you know, forgiveness has been described as a gift that you give yourself. But if if it's superficial, um, if it isn't coming from a place of a deep recognition of all the harm that's been done, then it's only a small gift. You know, if it's going to be a, a big, meaningful gift to yourself, it, it needs to f- start first from a place of f- full accounting for all the harm. And, you know, you may not be able to forgive the person for all of that right away or ever. Um, But if you get all of that hurt, you know, out there on the table, um, that's a gift to yourself as well. Yeah. Okay, so that's ACEs. And just to to repeat it for people watching, that's adverse childhood experiences. And then um, as far as for people that have just their their plates just too full, chronic stress, um, a lot going on. 
um, that can actually manifest in physical symptoms. And so uh, you talk uh, quite a bit about self-care um, and any other topics around that that you'd like to discuss would be helpful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't uh, remembered to mention it up to this point. And so many of my patients are the kinds of people that take care of everybody else in their world, often because they've been doing that since they were kids. There was something about their childhood environment that um, took them away from paying attention to their own needs. Kids need to be selfish. They need to play. They need to focus on their own needs for large stretches of time because that's how we all learn self-care skills. And if your home environment is a difficult one uh, or has difficult people in it, uh, you may not learn those skills to the extent that you do, that you need. And so my patients who come from that, they're the kinds of people that take care of everybody else. You know, the world loves them because all they do is yeah. selflessly uh, yeah. work on behalf of others. Um, but they don't know how to put themselves on the list of people they take care of. And that turns out to be an essential human skill. And if you don't have that skill, then your life is like... Um, on a, living on a treadmill that you never step off. Yes. Uh, and so I urge people to take a block of time on a regular basis every week, if they can, a full afternoon or, or morning, if they can, uh, to spend time experimenting, doing some trial and error, looking for activities that have no purpose but their own joy. I'm looking for the moral equivalent of finger paints for a four-year-old. Okay. A four-year-old with finger paints doesn't care how many pictures per hour they produce. They don't care about the quality of the work. They don't care who sees it. They just know they're having fun. And uh, everybody needs to know how to do that, uh, whatever the equivalent is uh, for you. And it it can take quite a while to learn. It can take months uh, to learn how to do it. And Many of my patients feel guilty. They've never in their lives up to that point um, done anything that was all about them. Um, And you have to, you know, do trial and error, try different things. You know, if you go out and do skateboarding over broken glass, you may find, you know, that wasn't very much fun, but that's okay. You can, you've learned something about yourself and you can uh, try something different the next time. One of my patients, actually, her family was not particularly dysfunctional, but she was a champion athlete and uh, she did very well in her sport, but she had to practice uh, and she practiced before school, after school, and on weekends from age four to age 18. She never really got to be a kid. Her father actually apologized to her for having pushed her too hard uh, you know, when she was in, in high school. So I was seeing her, you know, I met her in the emergency room. She'd been there all night with a sudden abdominal pain. She got all these tests that were normal. And talking to her about her lifestyle, she worked full-time, her husband worked full-time, she Um, had two kids. She was coaching them in her sport. She was coaching other people's kids in her sport. She was on the athletic club board of directors. She was driving kids to out-of-state competitions. No space in her life for herself. And, you know, I had her arrange for an afternoon off every week. And all she could think of to do was go for walks in a park. You know, she this was new, the idea of doing stuff for herself. Mm-hmm. But while she was walking, she was thinking. And she eventually hit on the idea of taking piano lessons. Big surprise, because she'd never done anything musical before. But she absolutely loved it. It gave her so much joy. And that was when her pains finally went away. Yeah. 
it's so interesting that we have to learn how to have fun sometimes. <laughs> it's a, it's a skill. It is when it is when you've when you've gotten yourself into this pattern of go go go. I mean, we can talk about all the personality traits of that that Sarno talks about of you know efficiency and productivity and perfectionism and all these things and and they don't give space to just be and just enjoy and it is it does take practice i love that you bring that up and that and that guilt how do you suggest people work around the the guilt of relaxing um i would give two two ideas there number one is is if you can figure out what it was about your childhood environment that led you to be this way that taught you to be this way that um you know, made you feel guilty if you weren't uh, focused on the needs of others. You know, the, all of these personality traits that uh, Dr. Sarno talks about, Dr. Schechter talks about, um, they, they were learned. Um, they, uh, you, people are not born perfectionists. Uh, somebody has to teach them. And if you can figure out, you know, how this was taught to you, it can help you to undo it. It can help you to learn a different way when you see that this was a, uh, you know, uh, your need to be perfect uh, was a false assumption that, you know, you were made to feel like nothing you ever did was good enough. That's where perfectionism comes from. How was that done to you? If you can understand how it was done, then you can undo it. Um, the second idea I would have, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of your audience are Christians. And, you know, I think that if you are a Christian and you feel the personal love of the Lord for you, um, that makes a big difference in overcoming guilt. You know, if if the higher power that you believe in is judgmental, is always watching you to see if you're making mistakes, if you're, you know, if you're sinning and is going to come down on you. Um, you know, in many ways, that is a parallel to uh, coming from a, a home that is not supporting you. But if, on the other hand, your relationship with a higher power is one of uh, unconditional love and support, um, that can be, be huge for turning things around. Yes. And I will say that that um, I think that's one of my passions behind running this um, this channel or this podcast is because for me, a lot of this did have to do with um, uh, correcting my misunderstanding of what kind of God loved me. Well, and even that statement that I that I can phrase it that way. This is the God that loves me and there is grace for me in the mistakes in 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 the times that I do need grace even and um, and just the mistakes and I, I don't know there was just a lot of um, correcting around that fear because if the God that you serve you are afraid of it is not safe. Um, and that that can cause the same sort of symptoms that living in a home that is not safe can have. Yeah, I, I couldn't put it better myself. I, I have seen many, many patients over the years with exactly that situation. Um, one patient I'll always remember, he actually had a completely paralyzed stomach. We wow. did a we did a medical test on him that to see how, uh, if his stomach was emptying properly, it was not emptying at all. And it, it turned out to be from, um, you know, a horrible fear that he had, um, uh, about retribution uh, from the higher power that he believed in. Wow. Um, I'm going to jump completely to 
a different subject because of something that you just said. Okay. Um, I did have somebody email me a question and um, the, the diagnosis or the description you just talked about is that, I'm going to butcher this, gastroparesis? Yes. Okay. Okay. So here. Well done. <laughs> thanks. Um, so here's a question from a, a watcher um, and I'm bringing up both um, because of the question, but also because I do want to dive into the fact that your um, work with the stomach and stomach issues and a lot of people um, have um, mind body symptoms that are related to the stomach. I mean, I De definitely almost everybody. Yeah. It was one third of my practice for yeah. decades. Yeah. Um, so, um, Jamie says, my daughter has gastroparesis, dysphagia, and CRPS. She has nausea a lot, even though she has a feeding tube that bypasses her stomach. Could Dr. Clark shed some light on how nausea works and if he has any tips or tricks on how to reintroduce food? Many thanks in advance. I look forward to the interview. You're doing a great job. It is wonderful to hear mind body from a Christian perspective. It's been a great help on the whole family's journey through healing. That's wonderful to hear that. Um, and yes, the brain is very tightly wired to the GI tract. And the brain has the ability to slow the GI tract way down anywhere from the stomach to the large intestine. My very first patient that I talked about earlier, uh, she was actually having an average of one bowel movement per month. Uh, despite taking four different laxatives at double the usual doses. So, you know, just profound, profound slowing of her large intestine. And this other patient that I was talking about uh, uh, had complete paralysis of the stomach, which is gastroparesis is the technical term. But he had zero emptying of his stomach when we did this uh, special test on him. Uh, for the medical professionals out there, it was a nuclear medicine gastric emptying study. And so the brain can do this. Um, doesn't mean that in any particular case, you know, like the one that Jamie is uh, talking about, that, that this is the cause. There are other causes, diabetes probably being the most common. Um, but um, it's well worth um, evaluating someone for all these sources of stress that we've been talking about today and seeing if you know we identify those stresses to uh, try to alleviate them, to find the uh, psychological causes that are responsible for this. Uh, my patient with the paralyzed stomach, when we finally recognized this you know, horrible fear that he had that he was going to suffer um, retribution from the higher power that he believed in, mm -hmm. um, and we were able to talk about that and alleviate some of that fear, um, then his stomach started working again. Um, so psychological treatment for this uh, absolutely offers significant hope um, that the situation can improve. The fact that there is um, complex regional pain syndrome going on at the same time, that's also a condition that in many people uh, is linked to psychophysiologic issues, and that may improve as well. It's all about trying to identify um, the sources of stress and uh, then working with those. Yeah. Um, so let's assume that they've done some um, psychological work around this and they're wanting to know how to reintroduce food. Do you have any suggestions on that? Like, 
graded exposure? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, what makes sense is to uh, start with small amounts of food that are uh, as easy to digest as possible. And the, the easiest are um, solutions like, uh, like Gatorade. Gatorade is uh, not too much different, you know, sports drinks, um, not too much different from uh, intravenous fluid um, for that matter. And very easy for the stomach to uh, absorb those. Some of those fluids can be absorbed directly by the lining of the stomach. Others, the, uh, they flow out into the intestine and get uh, absorbed there. Um, but that's the easiest possible uh, food that can be, uh, can be given for the stomach to handle. And then if that is okay, and the patient is not experiencing an increase in their nausea, um, then you can try uh, something a little more complex. Um, you know, probably uh, yogurt might be one of those. Um, but avoiding uh, high fat foods uh, would be important. Fat tends to be uh, the food that takes the longest to digest, the longest to be um, passed out of the stomach. So, you know, simple carbohydrates um, would be probably the next step. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, when we're talking about the healing process, I do want to hit one more of your keys, and that is these hidden resistances. Okay. Um, there are, you know, three sources of stress that I talk about to my audiences these days that can um, slow down the recovery process. And the three are the personality traits, the repressed emotions, and the triggers. And the personality traits we've already talked about uh, mm -hmm. the perfectionism, the mm -hmm. focus on the needs of other people to the exclusion of yourself. Um, and those can be changed. If you can recognize the childhood experiences that led to the development of those personality traits, then you can see that uh, you acquired those personality traits through an unhealthy process. And if you can start thinking of yourself as uh, as heroic, um, for the Christians in your audience, think of yourself as being loved by Jesus or the Lord or a higher power, um, and trying to internalize that unconditional love as much as you can, yeah. then these personality traits will change. The, the need for perfectionism, the need to... Um, not be on the list of people that uh, that you take care of um, can be reduced. Yeah. So that's that's a big help right there. The next are the repressed emotions, uh, typically anger, fear, shame, grief, or guilt um, that people can have uh, like magma inside a volcano. You know, the yeah. volcano on the outside may look like you know, nothing's going on. On the inside is these boiling emotions uh, are happening. We need to find those and bring them to the surface and put them into words. And one of the best ways is that exercise of imagining a child growing up exactly as you did um, and thinking about what that would be like and then writing about it and, and putting the emotions onto a computer screen or a piece of paper. And then the third is the triggers. Um, and the, the biggest, most common single trigger that I encounter is that uh, someone who inflicted adversity on you as a child is still in your life. And when that's the case, very often, uh, since you were you grew up with that person, um, 
there's no experience of setting appropriate boundaries between yourself uh, and that individual. And that uh, is something that typically needs to be developed, that these individuals, even as adults, even when you're an adult, uh, can still be toxic for you and can still uh, create symptoms for you. Um, my male patients in particular have difficulty recognizing just how stressful um, these people can be and, and how much of those repressed emotions they have um, toward the, uh, the adult parent that uh, mistreated them. So um, recognizing the accurately the level of harm that that person inflicted on you, recognizing the emotional turmoil they can still inflict on you, um, setting boundaries between yourself and that person so that you interact with them uh, as little as possible, interact with them at a level that keeps them from being um, uh, toxic for you. Um, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, but slightly different, I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about um, how to parent in a way um, and not really addressing the, the ACEs, but how to parent in a way that um, prevents mind-body syndrome or takes a step towards that for your own children. I don't have kids, um, so this is for my watchers. Um, uh, I have just really liked a couple of things you've said. Would you mind going there just briefly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so many of my patients are afraid that they're going to be terrible parents uh, because they don't have good role models in their own parents that they can call upon to uh, help guide them in and how they treat their own children. Uh, so I, I try to reassure them that, you know, if they are doing their best, if they are trying to be uh, parents who avoid the issues that were inflicted on them, that they're, they're doing okay. Parenting is really, really difficult. None of us does it perfectly. I've had, you know, two boys of my own. Um, and none of us can do this perfectly. But um, if you are coming from a place of kindness and, and love and support um, for those kids, that you're going to do okay. And if you can do a better job for your kids than was done for you, um, then you can count yourself a successful parent. Um, one other idea that I would go over, uh, particularly with respect to parents of adolescents, um, you know, when they're when they're young kids, obviously they need lots of supervision and and teaching from you. But when they're adolescents, they're trying to you know find their own way in the world, and they're going to make mistakes when they do that. And they're also going to be getting a lot of um, feedback from the world in general outside your home. So there are going to be lots of people who are letting them know whenever they fall short. It's going to be their teachers, their peers. Uh, it's going to have to do with their academic performance, their athletic performance, their musical performance, their um, the way they dress, the way their hair looks, you know, their, their body attributes, you know, all kinds of different ways they're going to be um, outside the home. They're going to be uh, getting, you know, often negative feedback. So if, if they can come back into your household and have it be a rock of support for them, um, that makes a huge difference. Um, you know, yes, if they're doing something dangerous, stupid, or illegal, which, you know, all teenagers are going to do from time to time, then you need to sort of let them know. But if you can come from a place of where you're giving them support, um, 
you know, five times as often as you're giving them advice, um, that's going to make them feel good about themselves. That's going to make them feel like um, they have someone uh, in their life that that has their back. And that makes such a difference because when those opportunities to do something dangerous, stupid, or illegal come about, uh, what's going to make them stop? What's going to make them say no? It's going to be my parent who loves me, who cares about me, who is five times as supportive as they are advice giving. They're going to be disappointed if I make this choice. And that's what you want going on in their head at that moment. Yeah. A feeling of being safe at home, right? Yeah, safe and supported. And, you know, it meant that I had to, you know, bite my tongue as a parent. You're going to see opportunities to give advice. You're going to see opportunities for to teach your kid how they could do things better all day long. And ideally, um, you're going to recognize that the kid already knows when they've messed up and you don't need to pile on. Um, If you keep silent at those moments, they're going to appreciate that you really care about them. You respect them. You know that uh, as a human being, that they're a good person, even if they've made a mistake. Um, And so I had to, as a, as a parent of an adolescent, I had to back off uh, countless times. And, and then also on the flip side, every time they did something well, try to notice it. I mean, one of my sons, uh, was notorious for the the terrible state of his room. I mean, most of the time you could not see the carpet um, because there was so much junk all over the place. Um, but the rest of his life outside that room, he was doing really well. So I never said a thing about the room. You know, I'd go in there, I'd look around and say, man, this is looks like a tornado has hit it. But, you know, I wouldn't come down on him for it. I just, you know, the, the kid was doing great elsewhere. Um, so that was that was an example of, of biting my tongue saying i'm not going to give this kid advice i'm i'm going to be coming from a place of support if he wants to live like this <laughs> cool with me i'm not sleeping in here <laughs> no yeah the dog would sleep in there but not me awesome all right um great well thank you um just in closing um i'm going to do a little bio in the little blip before we before I publish this video. But could you just talk a little bit in closing about the PPDA and what you're doing there and the website and whatnot? Yes, uh, the stands for the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. Um, the easiest web address to remember is endchronicpain.org. And we are essentially the largest nonprofit uh, in the country uh, that works in this field. We are trying to educate uh, the public, uh, healthcare professionals, medical professionals, mental health professionals. We have a uh, online webinar-based course that's based on uh, graduate school classes that I've taught to master's degree level um, uh, professionals uh, for a decade. Uh, we've got a, a textbook on there that's written without jargon uh, so that you know science-oriented uh, readers uh, can get a lot out of it. It's called Psychophysiologic Disorders. Um, we've got all kinds of videos. We've got uh, resources that we have reviewed and determined to be evidence-based in this field that um, people can pick and choose amongst, um, you know, ones that we feel uh, can benefit patients. Um, So, yeah, we're always looking for um, people to uh, sign up with us so that we can keep them in the loop. We've got a fall conference coming in a couple of months. Uh, We had one last year that over 400 people attended. Uh, 
and we've got another one coming end of October, early November, um, that um, we, again, try to keep the jargon out of it so that people who are not professionals can um, learn a ton from that. So that's open to the public? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. And um, the tab name for all those resources that you have that I've been on many times, is it called resources? Just for people watching? Um, there's a, a tab at the top uh, for patients and uh, a menu drops down from patients that's got, you know, all kinds of things. And I think one of them is called resources. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. It's a good one to go to. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. There's a lot of gold nuggets in here. So thank you you for everything you're doing, Jen. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching. And I will see you again next week.